what I see a lot of though in the market is that people are not able to achieve that. So what they're doing is they're going in, they're renovating 20% of the units. They realize they're just not going to get where they need to go, but they can sell it and get a, get a good IRR. So they sell it as a value add, even though they bought it as a value add, they sell it as a proven value add and they sell it to the next guy who then renovates 20% of the units and sells it as a proven value add and the cycle repeats itself. Right. So it's, uh, and it's because none of those guys are hitting their numbers and they know they can't because they've overpaid. At some point, the music is going to stop. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to Weiss Advice. I am your host, as always, Yona Weiss. Thank you for joining us today on this wonderful journey we're about to embark on. I'm with Jonathan Twombly today, which is a pleasure because I've seen him around. He is a very well-learned in the multifamily syndication space as a lot of experience. I'm really excited to finally get to speak to you. So Jonathan, how are you? I'm well. Thank you very much for having me. It is a great pleasure to be here and to be connecting with one another. Ah, absolutely. This is, uh, this is my favorite thing in the world to do. So yeah, this, uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I'm enjoying this and I'm glad you joined me. So a little background, you guys may have heard of his name before. He is the founder of Two Bridges Asset Management, which is a multifamily syndication company. He's been around doing this since 2011. So he's been in the business for a while. And he recently started his multifamily mentoring program called the Multifamily Launchpad. Right, but Jonathan, you haven't always been in the syndication space, right? I can tell by the gray hairs on your head. Uh, yeah, you're, you've been been around the block a little bit. So, what what were you doing before before you got into multifamily syndication? I'll just mention the gray hair for a minute. I was uh, I'm one of those guys who went gray really early, so I've had gray hair for pretty much my entire adult life. So, oh, wow, okay, yeah, but yeah, so I've been around for a while. I didn't start out in multifamily. I was a lawyer for more than a decade, actually, uh, Wall Street. And I worked in Boston and London as well as a commercial litigator and then focused kind of the end of my career on real estate related litigation, especially with respect to hotels. Mm-hmm. So was before I actually got into real estate on the investment, investment side, I was, spent like, I guess, about five years doing litigating real estate deals that went bad. Right. So that was an interesting kind of introduction into how the deals are structured. And it probably came about right at that time where there were a lot of deals that went bad, right? I mean, well, it was actually right before that. It was actually right before that, that I started getting involved in that. Uh, so yeah, we were, you know, there are always litigations uh, about deals going bad, especially in the hotel business. I'm sure that there are probably a lot right now going on where people are looking for, you know, a way out of their obligations. But, uh, you know, we were dealing with back in those days was, really more of like a problem caused by good times that we represented a lot of hotel owners and oftentimes the the chains that represented them would decide they wanted to build a hotel right next door to the you know our owner's hotel or something and then there would be a big fight about whether they could do that or not gotcha so stuff like that interesting any like crazy war stories like some crazy case that you uh that you once dealt with that you didn't like to share here that maybe you've never shared before or maybe you have. <laughs> I know about crazy cases. So I did, you know, one of my kind of early victories as a lawyer was um, we represented 
the company that built the original World Trade Center, you know, the contractor and the owners of the World Trade Center had sued the contractors to abate the entire World Trade Center of asbestos. And then basically, like through kind of a procedural maneuver, I figured out how to get them out of the case, which was great. But it also was one of the things that really made me sour on law because here I was like this very junior associate who figured out like the winning strategy to get this huge company off the hook. And basically, this was kind of like a case where that company was kind of testing out our firm. They became a client to the firm as a result, probably spent like tens of millions of dollars in legal fees after that. It didn't make one difference to me other than <laughs> like got I, got a, I got a good review. Kind you of know, out on the said, oh, that Twombly guy is pretty smart. Let's, you know, that was it. And that was very frustrating to me because the whole legal, you know, especially big law, it's just not structured in any way to allow like quicker advancement or mm-hmm. at better salaries than the guy who you know, anybody, everybody else in your class. So it was, it was very, it was very frustrating. Right. But, I will tell you one funny war story. One of my responsibilities as a very junior associate was like to get court filings filed and served on time. And one time we were responding to, we had, we were briefing something and we had to get our, our reply out and postmarked by midnight or it would be late. And literally was putting the papers together. And there was like a huge case with like a dozen other parties that had to be served and like had to make, sets for everybody to send them out and like at 11 45 p.m it was finally done i race out the door and this box you know this whole box full of papers to go to the post office to try to get them you know mailed and and i run out and it's actually the day of the new york taxi strike right and so all the taxis are on strike there's no taxis anywhere and this is long before like uber and stuff then, so the taxi pulls up in front of the hotel next to my office. I run up there and there's a couple getting in, I'm like begging them, like, can I please have this taxi? And they're like, basically, no, like, no way. <laughs> taxi. So this black car driver pulls up and he's like, where do you need to go? And I was like, got to get me to the post office across town. And he's like, I'm like, how much? 20 bucks. Okay. Jump in. And we're just sitting there. And this is like 11:45 PM at night and, and just like deadlock traffic in oh, town Manhattan. So I'm sitting there watching like the clock tick and soon it's 11.59, soon it's 12. And I'm like, the deadline, like uh, this is going to be all kinds of consequences to pay. Finally gets to the post office and the post office, the main post office in New York is like, it's a big, huge building. I don't know if you've ever seen it. They film a lot of movies there. It's got these giant steps, run up the steps, get into the post office, get in line. I'm waiting there. And finally I get up to the window and I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I said, these guys, when are these going to arrive? And he said, uh, well, today. And I was like, when are they going to be, huh? And like today, and this is after midnight. He's like, I can get there, they can get there today. He's like, yeah. I said, when are they going to be postmarked? And he said, he said, it'll be postmarked yesterday. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And he points at the clock behind him. The clock on the wall in the post office still said like 11.45 p.m. the day before. <laughs> they had it, I'm sure they had it set up that way so people could get their stuff postmarked like after midnight. So oh. it was actually technically in default that I got, but the That's clock cool. on the wall at the post office said 11:45 p.m. the day before, and That's it all was fine. So. <laughs> That's a good story. Either that, or you forgot to change the clocks for daylight savings. And uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I, it was. I'm pretty sure it was intentional. It was actually, intentional. So. That's incredible. That's an awesome story. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a fun story. So, you know, you had a lot of that, uh, you know, fun, if you'll call it that, during uh, commercial litigation as an attorney. Moving into the syndication space, and I'm pretty fascinated. I mean, there are a lot of mentoring programs out there, right? I've yep. come across tons of them. Yeah, tons of them, especially multifamily, and it be, because it is. First of all, I mean, it's a great space to be in. There's a lot of opportunity, even though the market is, you know, I wouldn't say it is uh, saturated at this point. There's still tons of opportunity out there, and you need someone. You really do need a mentor in order to to do it well. That's what I've found. Uh, you know, anyone can try anything on their own, right? Any entrepreneur, whatever can do, but you really do well if you have a, if you have measures, someone guiding you, what, uh, you know, what kind of led you to, to start that in the first place? Pretty much as soon as I got into the business, I wanted to start a mentoring program. Partly it's because it's sort of just in my nature, you know, everybody in my family is in education in one form or another, or at least like my parents' generation, like that whole generation of people all in education in one form or another. So it's kind of in my blood. Mm-hmm. And I've always enjoyed teaching and mentoring. And, and and when I got into the multifamily business, I was pretty disappointed with the options that were out there, right? I thought that they were too expensive and too shallow. And when I and I went through some of the, a lot of the materials that I, you know, fortunately I would have worked with people that had the materials. I didn't have to pay for them myself because if I had to pay for them, I would have been really incensed about how bad they were. What, what I really found was when I got started doing deals myself, I just kept on getting blindsided by stuff that wasn't ever mentioned in any of these programs. Right. So that kind of like reinforced my desire to do something that was better and more accessible, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted more people to be able to get these things, make it easier for them, and also just make it better. So I really, about five years ago, started kind of tinkering around with doing courses and I went through a couple of iterations of courses and then finally launched multifamily launchpad in its its present form about just about two years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's set up as a monthly membership. You know, you can be in for as long or as little as you want. There's no obligation. It's not going to cost you 30,000 bucks. It's just meant to be really comprehensive and really easy to be a member of. Got you. Gotcha. Okay. And that's awesome. I mean, and you have, I assume you have students that are, you know, graduating and successfully going into the, the multifamily investing space. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I'll be honest. It's very tough for people right now. Yeah. It's very tough to find deals. And what I have been getting a lot of, you know, feedback from students is, you know, Hey, Jonathan, thanks to your program, I'm finally in contract on my first deal. And then I follow up with them like, Hey, what happened with that deal? And like, oh, it fell out of contract because we found this or the seller was unreasonable about that. Or so it, it's been tough for people to get stuff mm-hmm. over the threshold, right. uh, you know, to be honest. But and it's not designed to be like a program that you graduate from. Like it's, it's an ongoing mentoring program. Gotcha. Okay. So for as long as people want to be in it and want to continue to have access to the community and have access to me, uh, they can be in it. Uh, and then if gotcha. they decide they don't want to be, then they can go. <laughs> right. Okay. That's interesting. Now I've heard you, um, you know, for the past couple of years already, I've you know, heard you on a number of panels, right? Yeah. And you've been pretty, you know, straight down the road that you're, you have, you, you think, you know, the market, and I'm just going to go right there. The market is kind of, it's in a bubble and a lot of, you know, it's hard to find good, good properties at good rates. And there's going to be a, a correction, et cetera. I know you have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, sold off uh, a bunch of your, your portfolio 
And uh, I mean, do you see that coming to an end at a certain point? I mean, you're, are you still looking? You're still trying to find oh, yeah. an opening? Yeah, I mean, it's always still looking, you know, trying to be creative, find deals that, that work or maybe in markets that are a little more overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, you know, historically I was looking in the Southeast because I thought the demographics were really great. And for a while it was a little bit of an under the radar market because everybody was focused on Texas, but that's changed in the last few years as people right. have come to understand the demographics of the area. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's proximity to New York doesn't hurt, right. Can, you know, given all of the wealth that's in the Northeast that wants to invest elsewhere, right. It's a lot easier to get there than Texas. So it's, it's attracted a lot of attention, but what that means is that the cap rates have been become really compressed and it's very difficult to find deals that work. So I've been actually trying to kind of zig where other people zag and look in other places that are not in favor at the moment, right? So places that have a reputation for being landlord unfriendly or, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have this spectacular demographics that the Southeast have. I think there is a little more being on the bone. Okay. To be honest, though, I haven't really seen anything great come up in those markets yet. And it's, again, I think because there's so much attention being paid to multifamily at the moment that people are paying a lot of money for deals that, like, frankly, in my mind are crap. So, like, I wouldn't, just wouldn't touch them. Uh, but that's, that's where we are. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of money out there. There's a lot right. of attention on this asset class. And there's a lot of money coming from other, you know, people who used to invest in hotels and retail and other things like that are all plowing their money into multifamily now too. So whether it's a bubble, I don't know. Uh, It is certainly overpriced as compared to your historical, you know, cap rates, right? By a long shot. I suppose as long as we have low interest rates, that will continue. And the real issue is what's going to happen with interest rates. You know, they, they have a tendency to spike unexpectedly. And, you know, if they do, and you're holding the bag, it's not going to be fun. I still continue to, um, to look for deals and hopefully find stuff that you know, can withstand that sort of price movement if it happens. Gotcha. And what would be something that you consider to be a good deal? Just kind of objectively. Objectively. I mean, look, as a syndicator, if you want to make money, there has to be, there's, a, there's only a couple ways to do it. If you're looking at like stabilized properties, then you've got to buy them at a pretty generous cap rate in order to satisfy everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got investors who have been trained to look for an 8% referred return. And so you're basically got to look at kind of nine and 10 caps if you're going to make money, which is almost impossible to find right now. Right. Right? And uh, so the other way that people do it is, well, they do these big rehab deals, right? Where they're buying something at a low cap rate and then hoping to increase the rents so much that they're getting it up to the cap rate that they need to. Mm-hmm. What I see a lot of though in the market is that people are not able to achieve that. So what they're doing is they're going in, they're renovating 20% of the units. They realize they're just not going to get where they need to go, but they can sell it and get a, get a good IRR. So they sell it as a value add, even though they bought it as a value add, they sell it as a proven value add and they sell it to the next guy who then renovates 20% of the units and sells it as a proven value add and the cycle repeats itself. Right. So it's, uh, and it's because none of those guys are hitting their numbers and they know they can't because they've overpaid. At some point, the music is going to stop, right, for the kind of run-of-the-mill syndicator. I think there are people out there who are really, really good at what they do and they have an expertise at finding, finding those deals that are really undervalued or just where the market has mispriced them somehow. Folks like that are going to be fine. But I think there's a lot of people out there who 
Like it's been easy for the last 10 years. It just, the market has just gone up and up and up and up and up. And like, that makes a lot of people who aren't that good at something feel like they're good at it. But as Warren Buffett says, you know, it's only when the tide goes out that you find out who has been skinny dipping. Right? <laughs> so I think we're going to see that, but as to the timing, I mean, I've given up on trying to predict the timing of it. We might be heading into with the COVID ending and all the stimulus money, we might be heading into like a, a boom period for a while. So that's going to keep, you know, attention on it and prices high. And right. so, you know, in the short term, I see, I don't, honestly, next 12 months, I don't see any correction happening. Uh, okay. Unless there's some kind of interest rate spike. Yeah, that's but, good news. <laughs> yeah. But um, but that doesn't mean I also say, oh, it's a great buying opportunity. I mean, I also don't believe that just because there's not a correction doesn't mean that you should necessarily be buying. But sure. um, it's just me. Yeah, listen, and everyone, uh, and I appreciate that because everyone has different different views on the subject. Have you considered other types of asset classes, like other other type of investments? Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things I'm looking at very closely is um, cannabis-backed real estate because of the quasi-legal status of cannabis and the fact that you can't finance it. So that leads to some opportunity. And in that case, you know, a lot of what the industry feels is that there will be full legalization in the next you know, five years or so, or at least banking reform that'll allow you to start financing these deals and that will cause cap rates to compress. So there's an opportunity to get in now mm-hmm. at very high cap rates and potentially sell at low cap rates. So that's something that I'm exploring. Interesting. Some, so things more like uh, industrial or, or retail? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Both. Both industrial production facilities and retail dispensaries. That's great. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've spoken to uh, someone who's actually in the financing sector for, I mean, obviously the mainstream banks and, and you know, federal is not giving uh, loans yet, but there are, you know, there are those lenders uh, that will finance this type of asset specifically because it is a niche because they do right. see it as an opportunity. That's something that I, I definitely see expanding. Uh, yeah. Like I, I mean, those lenders tend to be private lenders and they're very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So it may or may not work on your, particular deal. But um, yeah, there is some opportunity to finance them. But be- again, because of the risk, they're charging a lot of, or the perceived risk, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, they're charging a lot of uh, you know, very high interest rates for those loans. Very interesting. No, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not something that gets talked about a lot, I think, because partially because of the, the kind of stigma it has and the fact that many states have still kind of rejected the, uh, the approval of the industry. Yeah. But it is, it is still, it's, it's actually legal in some capacity in 36 states now, mm-hmm. right? So there's only 14 holdouts that don't even have medical marijuana at this point. So those states are behind, the federal government is behind. And I think that's why the consensus in the industry, and of course, like anytime you talk to anybody in any industry, they're always bullish about their industry, of right? Course. So, and I'm sort of standing on a little bit on the outside of it. So I'm a little, slightly skeptical, but the, the whole, you know, when you talk to people in the industry, I mean, they're convinced that you know, legalization is coming on a nationwide basis at, and at the very least banking reform is coming soon. So that will change things quite a bit when it does. I mean, it certainly will. I, we are, you know, we'll see. We'll see yeah. what happens, right? Well, maybe we can do a follow-up show. Yeah, maybe we can do a follow-up show in a year and talk about it if I want. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Yeah. No, I'd, love to, I'd love to do that. I mean, it is, it is fascinating. I've seen, uh, I've seen some, some advancement of it over the past couple of years. But it still t- tends to be on the uh, kind of on the slow, 
the slow uh, pace uh, of other asset classes that are, you know, obviously any others in real estate is really more mainstream. There are very few that are out there that have such a, an aspect to it that make them you know, have that potential where it's still kind of almost outlawed or you know, have stigmatized. Yeah. Have you, have you guys done any cost segs on cannabis related uh, entities or cannabis related? We have, yeah, we've actually done a few um, like warehouse and you know, production facilities. They actually ha- they come along with other, in the states that obviously allow them, they come with other certain types of tax abatements or, or tax, what's the word I'm looking for? Tax credits. Credits, credits exactly. Yeah. Special tax credits for that. So it's, you know, it's beneficial on both ends because yeah. you can get the tax benefits and you can, you know, make the, make the money on the, on the deal. I- have they been able to pay you with a check or have they had to give them suitcases full of cash? Oh, we don't accept Bitcoin yet at Specs, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, you know, these, these companies still, they have uh, LLCs and they have, uh, they have companies that are registered. I don't know exactly how they're doing business or, or whatnot, but uh, in fact, one of the people that, that did reach out to us was a CPA who, you know, was dealing with this with clients and said, Hey, this is something that we want to want to get done because his client was in that business. And a lot of these people, they're not, you know, that have these businesses are not solely in that business. So it's, it's usually uh, a kind of a supplemental business, another, you know, stream of income that they're bringing on. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there are local banks and regional banks that will deal with cannabis now where it's legal. Right. Um, just, it's just the national banks that, that still can't touch it. So it's sure. possible to get a bank account now and write a check but I, I actually when i used to have a podcast years ago about alternative investments i remember talking to people about cannabis and they were literally having to deal with cash all the time mm-hmm. banking services and you know they were generating so much cash but they didn't know what to do with it so i was hearing stories about stuff like people just showing up at their relative's house with like a suitcase you know a suitcase full of cash i mean like you're just paying for your kid's tuition because i can't <laughs> I can't put the money in the bank. I can't spend it. I can't just, here's, here's, take this, you know, 25,000 bucks for college, you know, so. That's crazy. Yeah. It has become a little more mainstream. What are, what are some other things? I'm just out of curiosity. I mean, you, you mentioned you did have a podcast a while back and I'm sure you talked about a lot of different things. Anything like stick out, you know, from that experience, an episode or, or something I mean, that was just like. Just, just we covered everything. We did talk about Bitcoin in the early days, I mean, not, not really early days of Bitcoin, but early days of like mainstream awareness of Bitcoin. We talked about the syndication of racehorses. We talked about, you know, what else? Syndica- syndication of marinas, syndication of, it wasn't like the syndication show, but I mean, a lot of the ways that these deals are structured is as syndication. Sure. So, you know, people are investing in, you know, marinas, mobile home parks, you know, fractional interests in boats. I mean, you name it, like you can turn it into a, an alternative investment if you want. So it was, it was an interesting show to do. I did talk to a lot of people doing, uh, oh, I mean, selling websites, selling, uh, gosh, just really anything, you know, so. Yeah, you can make a business out of anything. Right? Yeah. Alternative investment can include anything and everything in the world. But that's pretty, it's pretty impressive when you see people doing things like that. And it, I guess it really just, just does depend on the circles that you run in, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. Oh, another one was like ownership, ownership of like music rights. That was mm-hmm. another interesting one. Where people, you know, a lot of famous musicians have sold off the rights to their music. And you can buy that as an asset because there's, you know, 30, 40 years of copyright left or what, what happened. Mm. Or if they're still alive, it's their, you know, their life plus 75 years. So it's, it's pretty long 
lasting asset and creates the stream of income. So that's interesting. There's, there's all yeah. kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. That is actually interesting. I've never explored that, but uh, I do know that royalties are considered a passive uh, income. And so yeah. there's schedule E income as well, which can be a good kind of alternative to, uh, to real estate investing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure that, I'm sure that, you know, the yields on those have probably dropped also right. but, like everything else, but these interesting question is whether you can finance it. Like, can you, right. can you get debt? You, maybe you can, like, maybe it's like a seen as like a security. You can get, a, you can get debt against it. Interesting. Yeah. That was never, never delved into that. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, Jonathan, I want to transition now into the final four. This is the the last part of our episode. We ask four questions to all of our guests. And the first question for you is, what is the worst job that you ever had? Well, despite the fun war stories before, the worst job I ever had was being a lawyer, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really a grind. The hours were just, the, there was just no control over my life at all. And despite the fact that I was making, you know, what most people would consider a really good salary, it was, it was just not worth it. I had, I had no life. And, you know, I remember I, one, there was one time where I, I worked for 41 straight days that day off, you know, I would work like, you know, one year over the holidays, you know, I worked like every day other than Christmas day. Like it was just, you know, it was just stuff like that would happen. I was constantly missing stuff all the time. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, not it was not conducive for happiness so glad to be out of that yeah for sure for sure <laughs> uh, if you can think of a book that you've read that's given you a paradigm shift love to hear it paradigm shift paradigm shifts that's a little tough but but whenever i ask this question i always wind up coming back to the same book which is called the war of art it's a play on the book you know the art of war but the war of art is about it's really aimed at writers and artists, but it also is really applicable to entrepreneurs. It's about how you, you know, fight resistance and just sit down and get the work done mm. every day. It's a really quick read. Like you can read it in an hour, maybe an hour and a half, but it's, it's really a good book for kind of getting you in, in the right frame of mind to work. Interesting. When, when nobody's telling you what to do, like when you're on your own and you don't have a boss cracking mm-hmm. the whip, like this is how you, get it done. Yeah. It seems like something necessary for any entrepreneur because there, there's so many distractions and yeah. uh, you got to make sure to put in the hours and, and get things done. So it sounds like a good one. So the war of art. Yeah. By Stephen Pressfield. Okay. Well, we'll put that on the ad, uh, add that to the book list and put it in the show notes for anyone interested. Third question for you, what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Skill or talent I would like to learn. Can be anything. Gosh. That's a, t- that's a really tough one. I think I would like to learn to be a better salesman of myself. And I guess maybe it would surprise people who are like on my email list to see like me blasting out email all the time and stuff like that. I mean, I kind of know how to run through the motions of mm-hmm. marketing, but it's still like saying anything good about myself is very tough. So if I, I'd like to become a better self-promoter, I guess, and not be so worried about sounding salesy or so, sounding like a marketing. I'm always trying to market without sounding like a marketing and maybe, right. you know. For sure. And I mean, the best marketing is when you don't realize it's marketing, right? right. <laughs> and uh, in my experience, the best way to do that is actually through teaching, um, you know, and through education. It's true. And that's why podcasting is such a great medium, right? Because you can do it, uh, you can teach and inform people and it's free. You don't have to get them to pay you, you know, to hear your message. So exactly for sure. 
Okay, that's a good one. Um, okay. So fourth and final question for you, what does success mean to you? I think for me, it really means having freedom, right? Like freedom from stress, or from, you know, from bad stress. Like you, you want to have a little bit of stress, like a dead, deadline stress is okay, or like, you know, finishing a project stress is okay. But stress from like having you know, your, your needs mad and stuff like that. Like that, that to me is successful. Like when you have complete time, complete freedom or complete control over your time right. and all that other stuff is taken care of, mm-hmm. like indefinitely, like not just like for now, but like forever, that's kind of the mark of success to so be able to just do what you want, you know, when you want it, where you want to do it. Sounds good. That's a, it's a great answer. And, uh, it, it definitely is when you're in, you know, have that control, have that freedom, anything's possible at that point. Right? I mean, that, that's why in some ways I feel like I've already achieved it because, you know, just getting out of law and now having really control over my time, which I've managed to create through, you know, real estate investing and through my coaching programs and stuff, just like, I feel like, well, I've already made it. Sometimes it's a little bit hard for me to like, push myself harder because I'm kind of like, well, yeah, this is kind of what I wanted, you know? Right. So, I don't, you know, I got out and I can support myself without having to work like a, you know, like a crazy person anymore. Right. So that's, yeah. So you certainly made it. I mean, in, in that right. respect, I mean, there's always, I always like to, to look at it as a, as a journey and you're continuing on yeah. you know, the path of success in whatever you do. So just keep doing it. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure. Where can our listeners find you or reach out to you if they choose to? Well, probably the best place is to go to my Facebook group, which is called the Multifamily Investment Community. That is a free Facebook group, spam-free, BS-free, just about learning and connecting. So that is a really good place to connect with me. The one caveat is that I'm very uh, stringent about keeping the spammers out. So there are some questions you have to answer to get in. And Facebook, in its infinite wisdom, only shows those to people who come on computers. So you have to log in the first time on your computer. After that, you can use your phone. Interesting. Multifamily okay. investment community is a great place. And the other place is you can go to multifamilylaunchpad.org and grab a download there. And that will get you on my email list awesome. if you'd like to get those. All right. Well, thank you again for, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm glad you made the time. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. Over too fast. <laughs> I know, right? It does fly by pretty fast, but uh, uh, hopefully we can do it again, do a follow-up episode at a certain point. Absolutely. And, uh, and to all of our listeners, remember the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating or review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn. Send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.